Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you this morning, this Lord's Day morning, this Resurrection Sunday, as every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We pray as we open the scriptures that you would speak to our minds and to our hearts. Father, that you would soften us, make us to understand and to hear and to cultivate within us a faith that reflects your Lord, our, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. A little bit different. I'm used to the pulpit. and Funny how we did this for a while in the pulpit and back and forth. Um, there have been many great military commanders throughout the ages Uh, Those who seem to just do battle with every enemy in front of them and conquer them. You had Nebuchadnezzar. We know him as the king of Babylon. And he thwarted Jerusalem, took all those Israelites captive. Xerxes the Great, the next empire to come after the Babylonian Empire. Um, He was the prince of Persia, if you would think, the king of Persia. Then came Alexander the Great, the undefeated one, never lost a battle, son of Philip of Macedonia. Then later on you have Caesar Augustus, who ushered in through his conquering of all his enemies the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Later on you have one such as Napoleon, famous for his victories. In Paris, along the Seine River, there is a shrine to Napoleon. It has marble in there with all his battles inscripted, at least all the victories that he had on this marble wall. It's a, quite a somber place. His battles are listed, Lodi, Jenna, and others. But what's missing is his defeat. All of these conquerors, all these military minds, these military geniuses were on a road to glory, self-glory, trying to conquer all their enemies and make a name for themselves. But they were on a road to nowhere. What would happen with the one that they could not conquer? And that was death. No military commander has ever been able to do that. Not even Alexander, who was undefeated. He found death in Babylon after he had turned back after growing ill. These greatest commanders conquered cities, nations, states, but none of them conquered the grave. Only one person was able to do that. And he was a conqueror a carpenter, one who proved by his resurrection that he was more than a a carpenter, that he was more than just a man, that he is the one that is worthy to be enshrined, if anyone is, but he is certainly worthy of our worship. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is not only proof that he is God's son, but it's proof that he defeated death the one enemy that we cannot conquer, and He defeated it on our behalf. This is the guarantee for everyone who believes. 
It is proof that he's God's son. It's proof that he defeated death. It's proof that there is a resurrection and life eternal. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he wrote at the end of his stay in Ephesus, somewhere around 53, 55 AD. He had had another letter in verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 9, there is an allusion to a letter that was written from Paul to the Corinthians. And so there was a response that went back to Paul. And in that response were a lot of questions, some concerns, and even some issues that were done. Paul was going to have to go back to the Corinthians like a tutor, someone showing them a roadmap, answering the questions. One of the questions dealt with the resurrection. That's what chapter 15 is all about from beginning to end, the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection, those who believe in him. Some of the confusion that the Corinthians had was this. Plato had taught years before, the soul is good, the body is bad. And so these came into the Corinthian church. Paul starts out by calling them brothers. They're professing Christians, but they were carrying a little bit of baggage with them. This baggage of Plato. Okay, I, I, I believe in Christ's resurrection, but in a bodily resurrection for me, no, that doesn't work. The body imprisons the soul. That's what Plato said. I want to be free of this. So there's one issue. Another issue was this. Some of the Corinthians were going, we heard the gospel, we received the gospel, we believed the gospel. Some of our loved ones, some of our family, some people here in the city have died. Where's their resurrection? Isn't it supposed to be three days and they raise up again? It's what happened to Jesus. What doesn't happen now? All these questions, all this confusion by believers. That's why we have the Word of God. The Word of God is more than an instruction manual. The Word of God is redemptive history. It tells us everything that we need to know to have a relationship with God. It teaches us everything that we need to know how to live our lives here and now, how to get to Him, and then how to live godly. All those things come into play. So Paul here comes to the Corinthians in chapter 15. It's like a dad teaching a child, one of his kids, how to drive. He's going to say, you know, let's, let's just start at the beginning. Let, let's start with the basics here. And that's what Paul does before he gets into saying, you know, you do this, you do that, and here we go. So as you would with a child and you get into the car and you sit in the passenger side and your child sits in the driver's seat, which can be a little bit scary, <laughs> particularly when you know you're trying to teach them something that they don't know. That, that's what Paul's doing here. But Paul is gracious if you read through this chapter, and I, I commend you to do that later today because we only had 11 verses here, but I'll hit some highlights on the way through. Paul is treating them like a child, like a babe in the faith. So one of the things that teaches us right away when it comes to, be, to the resurrection, and we want to teach people about the resurrection, we've got to show them grace. We have to handle them with care. 
as if they're our own child, lovingly, graciously teaching them. I know when I was teaching my kids how to drive, at least um, the first one got on pretty well, caught on pretty well. The second one, not so much. Um, and so you, you, you would do the, the, the things that weren't gracious, okay? They wouldn't care, and you'd turn! <laughs> you'd hold the handle, you know, up here. You, you, you'd be coming up to a, a stoplight and you're like, hit the brake. Paul doesn't do that. Paul comes to them with, if you will, kid gloves. He, he's trying to teach them the right road to go on. And the right road to go on is the gospel road. Do you remember days when we didn't have GPS? Maps goes, you had maps. You had to unfold, you had to see the path of where you were going. When I was a kid living in Fresno, California, we had made four moves up to that point, um, all within the state of California. Now it was time to make a big move. We were going from Fresno, California to Denver. And I remember my dad taking the map out of the U.S., putting it on the kitchen table, and it says, here's where we're starting, here's where we are right here, and here's where we're going. Here's the roads that we're going to take to get there. So he kind of had the big picture. So Paul goes back and says, let me give you the big picture here. I want to remind you of something. I preached you the gospel. Remember? I preached you the gospel of Jesus Christ. That what I received, I preached to you. He received it from Christ on the Damascus Road. He came face to face with the resurrected Lord. Different from the other apostles. The other apostles did a three-year ministry with Jesus. They were there all along the way learning how to drive this road of redemption to glory. And so it was abrupt with Paul. Jesus hit the brakes of his life and said, come follow me. You will go and you will be my apostle to the Gentiles. And so he goes, Corinthians, don't you remember? I preached this gospel to you and you received it. You believed and you're standing in it. That means you're, you're placed in it like this glass is placed on this stool. You're there. You've received it. You're in it. Do you remember? He says that, that gospel that you believed in, that's how you're being saved. The, the illusion here is to this idea of you are saved. Once you come to faith, you're justified. You are being saved. You are growing on the road to glory, becoming more like Christ along the way. Every landmark that you pass along the way, you're more and more like Christ. You're closer to your destination. And then you will be saved. That final consummation when we will be raised as Christ was raised in a glorified body. That's where Paul starts. He says, do you remember? It's like teaching the child how to drive. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put the key in the ignition. We're going to put our foot on the bank. We're going to turn and then we're going to pull out nice and easy and we're going to head down the road. It's very gracious. You just remind them beforehand. So that's what Paul does here. This reminder. 
Now he gets into a little bit more of the specifics of this gospel that he's preached because he has to go back to the beginning because they've taken a wrong course, a wrong turn. They're believing wrongly about the resurrection. Some believing there's no resurrection of the body at all. Oh yeah, Christ may be his, but not ours. But Paul says in this chapter, you can't have one without the other. It's illogical. It's unscriptural. And so he says, here's what I I delivered to you at the very beginning. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul's saying there's eyewitness accounts to this. The first witness is Scripture itself. If you read through the Gospels, all along the way, Jesus is saying, the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be beaten. He is going to die and He is going to rise again on the third day. And it's as if they didn't hear it, the disciples. Jesus on multiple occasions said that. On the Emmaus Road, after the resurrection... Jesus is walking with two individuals who are saddened. They're saying, we thought more of this Jesus. But some are saying that He raised from the dead. And then Jesus, in that moment, goes back to Moses. And starting with Moses, shows all throughout Scripture what had to come to pass. Including the Christ going to the cross being buried, and being raised again. These are fundamental principles of the Christian faith. Fundamental that Christ had to die. The wages of sin is death. We're all sinners. That penalty is imputed towards us. The only thing that can take it away is a payment for it that we can't make. So Christ had to die on the cross. That's imperative. He was buried, meaning he really, really, really died. It wasn't he was asleep. It wasn't that he was trying to fake people. He died. No pulse. But then on Sunday, he rose again from the dead. That's the scriptural testimony. But wait, there's more. Paul Paul goes, not only does scripture testify to that, But we have eyewitnesses, people like you and me. Now, you know if you see something and you go home and you go, you know what, I saw something incredible today. And you tell your wife, you tell your kids, whatever that's going to be. And sometimes they have this look on their face like it's unbelievable. Almost like, okay, prove it. Who else saw it? That's not the case here. The interesting about the thing interesting about this text is that Paul goes through a series of witnessing. It's not all at the same time. He says first he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter. Then to the 12. This would have been the 11 less Judas with Matthias, the new apostle 
So he then goes to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 at once. You know, if there's a traffic accident and the police show up, they get your story, they get the other person's story, and then they start looking for witnesses. They need two or three. They need to corroborate what has actually happened. Who's telling the truth here? And so we feel comfortable police with witnesses if there's two, three, four of them. But in this case, there is 500. 500 at one time, all together. Do you know how hard it is for 500 people all together to keep their story straight? It has to be true. That's, in other words, that it has to be true. So 500 people see the risen Christ. Then he goes on and he appeared to James, which is his, ha- his half-brother. Then to the apostles. Then last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me, Paul says. He appeared to me. That reference to the Damascus road. And he is amazed by that. He says, I am unworthy. He says, because I persecuted the church, but by grace. That's the other thing you need to see on this. This road that we are traveling and following Christ is that it's a road of grace. Paul is treating the Corinthian church with grace and he is a living example of grace. He goes, I am what I am by God's grace. In other words, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm an apostle of Christ. It's not anything that is within me of myself. He made me this. And not only did He made me, make me this, He supplies me for this. And He talks about how hard He worked. That's not effort that He's trying to impress Jesus. It's all by grace, He says. And so, this is what Paul's doing. Teaching Christians the road that they're to be on. I think about the book by Paul Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress. If you're familiar with that story, Christians in the City of Destruction... He has a backpack and it's the weight of sin that's upon him. He has a book, the book, Scripture. And he heads out from the city of destruction and he's headed for the celestial city. The whole book is a roadmap for the Christian life. All that you're going to encounter along the way. The right way, wrong turns, accidents, obstacles sometimes crashes. He experiences all of that. And he runs into unsavory people along the way. But he also has people who come alongside him. People like helpful. People like faithful. People like great heart. People like valiant. We don't travel this road alone. This resurrection road Paul says, it is the way we go. We follow with hopeful anticipation that we will be raised from the dead. So the first thing he wants to address with them, the first wrong turn, if you will, comes in verse 12. They had a question. How how can you say there is no resurrection of the dead? I told you to turn left. I didn't tell you to turn right. Why did you go to the right? They're they're questioning that some of them said there's no resurrection from the dead and they're talking about 
human resurrection, not Christ's resurrection at this point. And so Paul goes through this, this logical exercise to teach them the fallacy of believing that there's no resurrection. And he does it, like I said, in a very logical way. And he just starts out, he says, if there's no resurrection from the dead, if humans aren't raised from the dead, then not even Christ was. It's an all or nothing. And if Christ wasn't, there's a five-fold futility. In other words, believers, you want to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and then that's done and over with, but you're not going to be raised from the dead? That impacts the way we live our lives. This five-fold futility is that preaching and believing are in vain. It's empty. You're going down empty avenue that way. There's nothing to preach. There's, there's, there's nothing to believe in if there is no resurrection. The second one, you go down liar's lane. You misrepresent God because you're saying there's no resurrection when there is a resurrection. The third thing that they say is that you're on sin circle. The futility is if there is no resurrection, you're still in your sin. That debt payment's not paid. Fourthly, you're on destruction drive. You'll perish. There's, there's absolutely no hope for you. When you die, that's, you're, you're done. And all of these things add up to pity parkway. You're without God. You're without hope. No joy. No happiness. No direction. Well, Paul gets them back on the right road as quickly as possible. He starts by giving them a little tour of resurrection road, some theology. Verse 20, he says, Christ has been risen from the dead. He emphatically puts that forth. He's the first fruits. Right away, Jewish believers would have caught on to the first fruits. That, that means it's a taste, a foretaste of what's to come. When you go places to a reception or something, sometimes they'll bring out hors d'oeuvres. It's just something to hold you over until the main meal comes. Christ is the first fruits. He's the guarantee that the rest of the meal is coming. And so He's coming. He puts that forward. And then He tells a little redemptive history story here. Let, let me put this all into context, He says. There's these two men. Call one Adam. Call one the second Adam. Adam made a wrong turn at the beginning. It led him down a course headed for destruction. But then there was a second man that came. And where all those people that followed the first Adam or in Adam, they're all going to die. But this second Adam, who is the Christ, he's going to lead you down a road to life. There is an order to resurrection. There is Christ Himself. There's those who die, He says. And then there's us who are left when He comes again. But there is a process that goes that brings this all to completion. 
to get us to our destination. You know, as you travel from one place to another, like we did from Fresno to, to Denver, you get on the road and you're sitting in the car and you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting, waiting. And the road signs come up one after another. And so you pick a destination out there, um, somewhere out in, in the future. And you're looking and the mileage is like, now it's 200 and something miles. And now it's down to 180. And now it's down to 60. It's going along the way. Paul says, here's what it's going to look like for us. We're, we're traveling this redemptive road toward resurrection. And we're going to pass these landmarks. And, and one of those landmarks will be putting all the enemies of God under the feet of Christ, with the last one being death. And so the gospel says he's put down some of these things, all rule, all authority, all power, meaning the penalty of sin is done away with, the power of sin is done away with, still have the presence of sin, but these Landmarks, these road marks are clicking off. We'll get there before we know it. Paul continues on down this road. And in this journey, he's wanting to teach the Corinthians that if you go, continue down this road, there is no hope. There, there's nothing that you can do They even try to take a shortcut, the Corinthians. Maybe if we take this turn and take a shortcut, we'll we'll get there quicker. And in verse 29, they talk about baptism on behalf of the dead. So there was another little nuance here in Corinth where some people had actually, they say, um, had come and professed faith and then died before they were baptized. So it's like, you want to press profess faith, you profess faith, and then you say, okay, pastor, I want to be baptized. And you say, okay, we'll, we'll do that two Sundays from now. We'll, we'll get you in the program and everything else. And then for whatever reason, they die. And these Corinthians were going, hmm, how does that work? And so this, they had this idea of baptism by proxy. I'll be baptized for that person to ensure their going to glory. Yeah, all of this is like baggage along the way. When we come to Christ, we come empty-handed, not with bags in our hands. We, we are to leave everything behind. If we want to follow Christ, we not only deny ourselves, but we follow Him. We don't bring along the baggage. But Paul is, is talking about this shortcut, and he says, you know what, you're missing... If you start going this way and that way and every which way, you might as well just eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow you're going to die. There's no hope. There's nothing for you. So Paul says, let me tell you how this really works. This is how the resurrection is. And he does these beautiful illustrations to get their attention. He gives them an agricultural analogy. He gives them a creation analogy. He says the resurrection is like this. When you garden and you want to have corn or tomatoes and you have seeds, you pull the seeds out and they're dry. 
There, there's no life in them. But if you throw them in the ground, cover them up, and water them, they become something else. He says that's what the resurrection's like. This tent, this body that you have, is not the final state. It's a different body. But it will be a body that is sowed by the old, and life will come forth from death. So he paints that analogy. And then he does a creation analogy. He says that not all bodies are the same. He said if you look at creation, the beauty of it everywhere, all creation has different bodies. The fish have scales, gills. Birds have feathers and wings. Animals of different kind with fur. Some have tusks, teeth, those types of things. But they're different. And so are human beings. They're different. And just as those bodies are all different, there's a different kind of body that you need for all eternity. You need a resurrected body. A new body that fits with where we're going. If you're invited to a formal dinner, it's tucks and tails. For women, it's a formal gown. The whole thing. You have to be dressed appropriately for that. To be with God forever throughout all eternity, you need a new body. You need a different body. You need a heavenly body. Paul says there's an earthly body and there's a heavenly body. Each one is suited and fitted for the work that you're in, for the place that you are. We have glorious bodies right now. Think about it. Think about what you know. Think about what you can learn. Think about what you actually see, what you taste, what you smell, what you hear. How you can run and walk. You can jump. You can do all kinds of things. These are fabulous bodies. But you know what? This pales in comparison with with what is to come. With what is to come. And what is that like? Not completely sure. I do know that from Scripture, Jesus in a new body walks through a wall and then turns around and has breakfast along the seashore in John's Gospel at the end. Thomas can see scars, touch his hands, touch his side, and yet he could go through walls? He could just disappear and then reappear? He did this, Jesus did this for 40 days, coming and going, teaching them of the life to come the work that they needed to do along the gospel road. And there is work to be done. This is the body that he says we are going to have. And then he says it's, it's the earthly body, the heavenly body, and then he looks upward. He's looked at creation, fish and birds and animals and such. Now he looks up and he says there's a glory of the sun, there's a glory of the moon, there's a glory of the stars. What he's pointing to is what you have in this earthly body right now is nothing compared to what's coming. Nothing. And then he puts it into terms that hopefully they can understand. These things that are diametrically opposed. He talks about the earthly body being perishable. 
You know, if you buy things at the grocery store and you put them in the refrigerator and they stay there too long, they're perishable. You got to throw them out. They smell bad. You can't eat them. He says, our bodies do that. As we age, sin takes its toll. This is a perishable body. It's not going to last. But he says, the resurrected body is imperishable. One is sown in dishonor. The other is raised in glory. We're sinners, but we are also saints, but we will be glorified saints. These bodies are weak. The resurrected body is one of power. There's natural bodies and there's spiritual bodies. God wants us in Christ Jesus to have a spiritual body that will last for eternity. That's where we're headed. And Paul rounds out this whole mystery, he calls it. He says, all of this is about the victory of King Jesus and what He has accomplished. He said, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God fully with a perishable body. Yes, you enter the kingdom of God here, but you will be in the kingdom that is to come. That requires a different set of clothes, if you will. A different body. And then he answers the one question that's still in the back of their minds. I understand what you're saying, Paul. I understand that the dead do rise because Christ rose from the dead. I understand there's no shortcuts along the way. That we can't baptize, get baptized by proxy to try to get someone in. But what about us who are still here? What about us that, that don't die? You, you, you talked about planting seeds and those are dead and then they raise up into something else. All these illustrations that you're giving us is talking about dead people being raised to, to a resurrected body. What about us that don't die? And this is a valid question for every age. He says, behold, I tell you a mystery. There is an order to this. Christ resurrected first, then those who are with Him are resurrected. Those that are with Him in, a, in the heavenly abode, if you will, right now. But those that are living, they're on a fast pass. <laughs> He says in verse 51, not all shall sleep. In other words, not all will die. I'm answering your question. But in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, that twinkling of an eye is if you blink. That's short. Takes no time at all. At the last trumpet that announced the return of Christ, you will right then and there be transformed. In a second. In a second. You will go from perishable and you'll put on the imperishable. You'll go from mortal, you'll put on immortality. All of that happens at once if you believe in Jesus Christ. There is a condition to this. To be a traveler on this road, it is for those who place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those will be transformed into imperishable bodies. There is a resurrection of the dead. That would be for another sermon. But he concludes this thought of all of those being resurrected in Christ 
And he quotes Hosea 13:14. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? It's been done away with. Death has been swallowed up. There's a short book that booklet that's been written, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Death is put to death by the death of Christ. It is swallowed up. In the Old Testament, Korah and others rebelled against Moses. And part of the punishment there was everyone was to get away from him and his family. And and then the ground opened up and swallowed all they possessed and them included. Death is swallowed away as well. There's no more sting. Death has nothing to do anymore. It cannot take us. It has no power over us. So God gets the victory. So what does this mean for us? What does it mean? When we have a correct mindset of the resurrection and we will be resurrected again, it changes the way we live. In the very last verse of this whole chapter, Paul says that we are to be steadfast, we're to be immovable, abounding in good works. Like Paul, we're to take care of those around us. We want to give them the gospel that includes the resurrection. It's not enough that Christ is crucified and buried. He rose again from the dead. We need to give them grace. We need to give them good directions so that they can get to the same destination that we are headed in. At the beginning, I talked about great conquerors and commanders of all the ages looking to set their own road to glory, self-glory. But it's an empty road. It's a road of defeat. The only one to conquer death was Jesus Christ Himself and rose again from the dead. And with that hope, that confidence in our resurrection, we can live lives that reflect His. And we should. With God's help, we will. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank You so much for Your Word that shows us and proves to us that there is a resurrection from the dead for all who will believe in Him. And with that resurrection, we know that our sins are forgiven, that we have eternal life. All the promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus because He rose again from the dead. Father, I do pray for each and every one of us here that we would live in light of it, that we would know that even now we have resurrected power in our lives to live them out, to meet all the obstacles, to meet all the afflictions and sufferings, that there is hope, that there is grace, that there is mercy, there is strength, and there is a body to come that will never perish. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.